This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... That said, a conference is only a conference, and while the trade deals are important, what's also important is the follow-up. That's Michael Rubin, a former Pentagon official and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, talking about the just-concluded U.S.-Africa Summit. Details coming up also. South Africa's power system may be nearing collapse. The WHO links climate change to an unprecedented cholera increase. And Morocco will battle Croatia for third place at the FIFA World Cup. We have these stories and more on Africa News tonight. We start with our top story. The White House today said the just-concluded U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington highlighted the U.S. commitment to expanding and deepening U.S. partnership with African countries, institutions, and their people. So... Was it a win-win for the United States and nearly 50 African countries that took part? VOA's Carol Van Dam put that question to Michael Rubin, a former Pentagon official and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I say this as a Republican and a conservative, but kudos to Joe Biden. It's long past time we have serious focus on Africa, and it's clear right now with this second Africa leader's summit under the Biden administration that Joe Biden is actually quite serious about this topic. Uh, And we see that also with his promise to go to sub-Saharan Africa. That said, a conference is only a conference. And while the trade deals are important, what's also important is the follow-up. President Biden has appointed uh, former Assistant Secretary of Africa, Johnny Carson, in order to take charge of that implementation. But Carson is 79 years old. It's not clear the State Department is going to uh, allow him to do his job in a sustained way. What we really need is for the Africa Bureau of the State Department to uh, have much greater prestige and much greater input onto the seventh floor decision making of the Secretary of State than traditionally it has in the past. Uh, So I'm all for uh, this as a first step. The question is whether there's going to be a succession of steps afterwards Can you get into a little bit of the nitty gritty and what are some of the initiatives that were announced and will they really empower citizens in Africa? Well, certainly we've seen um, some signing, for example, involving Benin in terms of the Millennial Challenge Corporation and trying to increase integration uh, across West Africa. And, and, you know, that's important for trade. It's a win win for the economies of the region if they are willing, if they are willing and able to have free trade across the borders. It's also useful to um, have the United States commit to specific projects, although I do worry with regard to some of the climate change funding that such funding uh, can do more harm than good if there's not careful mechanisms to uh, prevent embezzlement, corruption, and so forth. With regard to the competition with regard to China, look, the United States is late to the game, but this is clearly showing that the United States' intent on being a part of the conversation in Africa. And you know, that's a good thing. It's also good that Joe Biden met with some leaders who are going to be having elections in the coming year. For example, George Way of Liberia and reinforced the notion of democracy and the importance of truly fair elections. What I worry about is by having those meetings photographed, 
some of these leaders who might not be sincere in democracy can use the photo op to imply endorsement where none actually exists. It seems like it's a hard balancing act when you you, you want to have this summit be successful. You, you're meeting with these leaders from all kinds of different kinds of countries and the way they govern. And you can't really tell them what to do. But yet you, you have to be influential and say, look, you know, you have to have better governance and you have to work on your corruption in your country. Right. Well, this is one of the reasons why I've always been a big fan of the Millennial Challenge Corporation dating back to the Clinton administration. Um, it was a new way of doing things for the State Department that took some of the diplomatic compromises out of the formula in order to ensure that funding was predicated on real progress on whether it was women's issues, transparency in government uh, and so forth. So to see the Millennial Challenge Corporation included to me was a good thing. But, you know, there's a, there's a condescension here that we will have a single U.S. Africa leaders summit and try to impose a one size fits all approach to the continent. Can you imagine doing that to Europe is Belarus, which is a dictatorship, really the same thing as France or Germany, which are not. So would you overall say now that it's ended and the African leaders are going home and the White House has put out its press statement that it was a success? Well, let, let me put it this way. The summit is two steps forward. What I'm curious is whether we're going to take two steps backward once the limelight moves out. That was Michael Rubin, a former Pentagon official and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He spoke with my colleague, Carol Van Damme. Burkina Faso has summoned Ghana's ambassador to protest comments by Ghana's president that Ouagadougou is using Russian mercenaries in its war against Islamic extremists. According to the French news agency AFP, Burkina's minister for regional cooperation, Karamoko Jean-Marie Traore, denied the claim and said Ghana should have sought to exchange with the Burkina B authorities on the security question in order to have the right information. This week, Ghanaian president Nana Akufo-Wado said a mine along the two countries' joint border has been allocated to pay mercenaries from the Russian-backed paramilitary outfit, the Wagner Group. Ghana's ambassador, Boniface Gambila Adagabila, said his president did not intend to condemn Burkina Faso nor to sow doubt, but to draw the attention of partners to increase interest in Burkina Faso. Several countries in Africa are alleged to have hired Wagner Group forces to combat militants, including Mali, which denies the claim. Burkina Faso has summoned Ghana's ambassador, which denies the claim. Uh, The World Health Organization says climate change is behind an unprecedented surge in the number of cholera outbreaks around the world this year. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. At least 30 countries have reported outbreaks of the deadly disease this year, about a third higher than normally seen. Philippe Barbosa is WHO team leader for cholera and epidemic diarrheal diseases. He says most of the large cholera outbreaks have coincided with adverse climate events and have been visibly and directly affected by them. Being uh, very severe droughts, very uh, like, for example, in the Horn of Africa, in the Sahel, but also in other parts of the world. Major floods, uh, unprecedented uh, monsoons, uh, succession of cyclone. So most, again, most of these outbreaks uh, have 
or are still uh, fueled by the result of uh, the climate change. No quick reprieve is in sight. The World Meteorological Organization predicts the so-called La Nina climate phenomenon will last through the end of this year. The pattern, which cools the surface of ocean waters, is expected to continue well into 2023. That will result in prolonged droughts and flooding and increased cyclones. Consequently, health officials warn large cholera outbreaks are likely to continue and spread to wider areas over the next six months. Barboza says preventing disease outbreaks will be a challenge. He says a global shortage of vaccine has forced the WHO to temporarily suspend its two-dose strategy and switch to a single-dose approach. That allows many more people to be vaccinated against cholera. However, he says it shortens the period of immunity against infection. So uh, the situation will continue to prevail for the months to come. There is no silver bullet magic solution and the, the, the producers are uh, uh, at a maximum production. So there is no, uh, uh, no hope that the situation will improve in the coming weeks or months. Babosa says lack of data makes it impossible to accurately determine the number of cholera cases and deaths. However, he notes information from at least 14 countries indicates the average fatality rate is above 1%. He adds the cholera fatality rate in heavily affected Haiti is around 2%. Cholera is an acute diarrheal disease caused by consuming contaminated food or water. Treatments include oral rehydration. People with severe cases will need rapid intravenous fluids and antibiotics. Cholera can kill within hours if left untreated. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Sabotage at power stations, corruption, organized crime syndicates stealing diesel, the sudden resignation of the man tasked with saving the national electricity regulator. Some energy experts say South Africa's electricity grid is close to implosion. The country's state-run power utility, ESCOM, has been battling to keep the country's lights on for almost 15 years, severely hampering Africa's most industrialized economy. Darren Taylor has more. In South Africa, daily power outages lasting between 4 and 12 hours are now the norm. Jobs are being lost, as are lives, with many hospitals unable to operate emergency equipment. The electricity crisis has caused a water crisis, because no power means water cannot be pumped to homes. Energy experts blame the situation on former President Jacob Zuma. A commission of inquiry has found he appointed cronies to loot ESCOM. They neglected infrastructure and failed to perform essential maintenance and upgrades at aging coal-driven power stations. Zuma denies wrongdoing. No charges have been filed against him for the corruption that destroyed ESCOM. But several of his former appointees are set to go on trial for financial crimes. Three years ago, Zuma's successor, Cyril Ramaphosa, appointed highly experienced retail executive Andre de Reiter to save South Africa's electricity network. 
Yesterday, De Reiter posted a video explaining his decision to resign as ESCOM CEO. I'm really gratified that I was entrusted with this opportunity. I'm obviously disappointed that I could not achieve all of the objectives that I had set myself. His departure followed calls from senior officials of the governing African National Congress, the ANC, for him to be fired. They opposed his appointment from the start, arguing that a white man shouldn't lead a state enterprise. Analysts say De Reiter did his best to turn ESCOM away from coal and toward producing electricity from renewable sources. This made him powerful enemies in the ANC who had fingers in coal contracts. Pressure on De Reiter was most notably from the person who should have been his chief ally, Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe. Earlier this week, Mantashe, who's also ANC chairperson, used the media to accuse De Reiter of treason for supposedly mismanaging ESCOM. The CEO penned his resignation a few hours later. I'm also dependent on the support of the broader political economy, and that support is absolutely critical to enabling the success of ESCOM going forward. Given recent media reports, I'm unfortunately currently in a position where I do not regard that position as being tenable. I have accordingly decided to step back. Energy analyst Ted Blom says while Mantashe wanted Dereta out for the wrong reasons, the outgoing CEO shouldn't have been appointed in the first place. He came in through the political back door. I know some of the other candidates that were interested in the job and who had a thorough engineering background and experience as well as utility experience and uh, they were overlooked. And if he was anything of the man he made out to be uh, as a turnaround specialist, he would have done his own work. But government planning expert Professor Mark Swilling says De Reiter was one of the first people to realize what had to be done to avoid the power meltdown that now looms. And so he rationally looked through what were the options and came to the conclusion that renewables plus backup gas and battery was really the only solution because that can be built on time within two years, are affordable. Unfortunately, ESCOM doesn't control the procurement of renewables. That was the responsibility of the Minister for Mineral Resources and Energy. The strategy that evolved makes a lot of sense, still makes a lot of sense, but probably won't be reproduced by the new CEO, which will deepen our energy crisis. South Africa's summer holidays began today with an announcement by ESCOM that it had been forced to lengthen blackouts because of breakdowns at several power stations. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Botswana is developing a national security strategy amid fears of heightened terrorism threats. In June, Botswana's army commander warned of vulnerability to terror attacks following the decision to deploy 300 troops to in Mozambique's troubled region of Cabo Delgado. Mokandisi Dube reports from Habrone, Botswana. The country's Minister of Defense, Kahiso Musi, told Parliament Thursday that Botswana is facing an increased national security threat. The emerging global security challenges such as cybercrime, terrorism, poaching, human trafficking, distribution of drugs, money laundering and transnational organized crimes 
continue to threaten Botswana's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Irregular migration also possesses a threat of multilateralism. To this end, Musi said a strategy to counter possible acts of terrorism and other national security threats is being developed. In an effort to address the above-mentioned global challenges, the country is developing the national security strategy. Botswana will ensure the permanent inviolability of national territory and its effective control by employing all available instruments of national power. In June, Botswana's army commander Placid Sihokom told lawmakers the country needed to scale up efforts to counter terrorism as the troops' deployment in Mozambique had created challenges. Botswana troops in Mozambique are part of the Southern African Development Community SATIC standby forces, more than 1,000 soldiers in Capo Delgado. As the defense force, we continue to have challenges in respect to cybercrime, terrorism, because we are now clearly in Mozambique specifically because of terrorism. And um, we, we do realize that um, our, our footprint there creates an even bigger vulnerability. This week, Botswana's Vice President Slamba Sohwane told new army recruits to be ready for deployment in Mozambique if called upon. Today you graduate from it to take your place in the Botswana Defense Force at a time when Southern region is fighting a war against terrorists in the Republic of Mozambique. You need to append yourselves with the tactics, techniques and procedures as well as the processes of leading your men in tactical situations quickly for you for you may be required to be deployed there or elsewhere. Since sending troops last year June, Botswana has lost five soldiers in Mozambique, including one during combat, while two died during freak accidents at their respective camps in Cabo Delgado. The other two died in a meta-suicide incident. Mkondisi Dube for VOA News, Haburoni, Botswana. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Nature is often overlooked when it comes to climate solutions, said Monica Medina, Assistant Secretary for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. We believe that nature-based solutions offer the most efficient, effective, and flexible way to address the twin crises of climate change and, of course, biodiversity loss. Ecosystems both on land and in the ocean are currently and will remain the best carbon storage system we have. There is nothing more efficient or effective. We know that nature-based solutions, just the ones on land, are capable of providing at least a third of the emissions reductions that we need to keep 1.5 alive. The time is now to start to harness the power of nature to help us sequester more carbon, stabilize climate cycles, adapt to climate impacts, and host the universe of species on which we depend. There is far more to harnessing nature to help mitigate climate change than just planting more trees. As forest conservation, restoration, and adaption generate broad benefits related to climate change in other areas, other nature-based solutions can advance multiple benefits, said Assistant Secretary Medina. Mangroves, people don't think of those as trees or as a carbon sink, but they are a huge carbon sink. And they provide important habitat for threatened and endangered species, provide flood protection and food protection, food security by creating the necessary conditions for coastal ecosystems to be vibrant. We can protect coasts, critical marine ecosystems, reduce 
flooding, through building wetlands, moderate extreme heat and replenish groundwater resources, capture and store carbon dioxide on all of the above and conserve biodiversity and improve our agricultural and forest lands if we just focus on nature. And of course, we are just as committed to ocean-based climate solutions, said Assistant Secretary Medina. The United States is pleased to be galvanizing more ambitious action for protecting marine resources through our Ocean Conservation Pledge, which commits the countries who are a part of that pledge to protecting at least 30% of their own ocean waters by 2030. Nature is really our most important tool for conserving carbon and for preserving the natural environment on which we all need to sustain ourselves, said Assistant Secretary Medina. It is our best bottom line. It needs to be second nature. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And now, time for World Cup highlights. We have the host of the sunny side of sports, Sonny Young, standing by. Welcome to African News Tonight, Sonny. Sporty World Cup greetings, Jaheus. Great to be back on African News Tonight. France or Argentina, one win away from becoming World Cup champions. This is a dream matchup for a lot of football fans, Jaheus. I'm taking a look at the statistics right now. We'll have the four top scorers in the final, Lionel Messi of Argentina and Kylian Mbappe of France. They, they, they're the joint top scorers with five goals each. Right behind them, Julian Alvarez of Argentina and Olivier Giroud of France. They each have four goals. So those will be the uh, attacking players to watch on Sunday. Uh, the French did report that they had uh, a few players uh, suffering from colds and viruses uh, this week. However, Didier Deschamps, the head coach of France, says he expects all his players to be healthy for the final on Sunday. It should be a great matchup, Yeheus. And, uh, Sonny, the, the battle for third place has its excitement as well. Excitement indeed, Yeheus. I think uh, the African representative the Atlas Lions of Morocco, would love to return home with that third-place medal around their necks. They'll play Croatia, a team they faced way back on November 23rd when they met in group play. The teams played a scoreless draw in that group encounter. And I think the Moroccans will play with passion and pride on Saturday. So that will be the penultimate uh, match at this first World Cup ever held in the Middle East. And I think the Moroccans will once again have a good crowd on hand at the Khalifa International Stadium, where that third-place match will take place, Yehaez. And, Sonny, let me ask you this. Has Morocco's performance in Qatar boosted its chances of hosting a future World Cup? I think it has, Yehaez. Uh I think the Moroccans, they've gained some status in FIFA and credibility with, with fans by beating both Spain and Portugal on their way to the semifinals. And there are now reports that the Moroccans are interested in a joint bid with Spain and Portugal uh, for, the for the 2030 World Cup. 
So we'll see how that develops. But, yeah, I think it has helped them, Yehaeus. The host of the sunny side of sports, Sonny Young. I'll be missing our banter, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be missing it too, Yehaeus. Lots of fun. Thank you for your input. And uh, that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehaeus Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Mm-hmm.